McInerney here, Jen Gerson here with me. This is the latest episode of The Line Podcast. This week, we are going to break down that $100 million deal to save Canadian journalism. We're going to talk a little bit about Twitter discourse as Hamas releases hostages. And we're going to poke a little bit into some Ottawa bubble stories. What is it okay to force a minister to answer a question in English in addition to French? And what does it actually mean that the Conservatives opposed a Ukrainian trade deal? All that and more on this, the latest episode of The Line Podcast. I want to start right off the top of the confession. Go. I need a vacation. Yeah. You're a um, flat? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty flat this week. And this is, um, it, it, hey, it's a good time of the year to need a vacation, right? We're into December now. Vacation's only a couple of weeks away. But I actually felt this week like a lot of the big stories were just whizzing by me. And I was like peripherally aware of them. But by, by the time I noticed them, they were gone. I think the the story you and I both saw was the announcement earlier this week that uh, the federal government has come to terms with Google. Uh, Google will fund a $100 million fund uh, annually that will be going to some third party. I guess we'll figure out what that is eventually. And that third party will figure out itself how to distribute the funds to support Canadian journalism. Um, $100 million bucks is not a lot. And well, it is, it's well below what uh, had been hoped for. So Google, I think, won on the dollar figure. But I also think they won on the fact that they have a one-stop shopping clearinghouse. They send the money. They don't worry about who gets it. They have removed themselves from that process. So look, I think there's a couple ways that we need to evaluate this deal. The first is to say that the federal government coming to a deal with Google, which will allow Canadian news links to stay on yeah. the site... That's good news. All right. Like unequivocal. Great. We came to a deal. We're not going to replicate the disaster with Meta with um, news links being taken off uh, the, the Internet, essentially. That is good. I'm happy to see that that conclusion has been met. That being said, let's not kid ourselves. This is absolutely a face saving deal for mm -hmm. the government. Google decided to play ball. They've thrown some money into a pot. The government gets to walk away saying, claiming victory. Um, and Google doesn't have to take the PR and reputational hit of pulling links. So this is a, a, a face-saving deal for the government. It wouldn't be wrong to say that the fact that the government accepted this is a capitulation on their part. I'm not sure how they're going to write the regulations to align with that's actually in C-18 in legislation. And I suspect that they're essentially going to just hand wave over some stuff. But here's... That's the first point. The second point is how we evaluate the deal based on the math. And some people will say, hey, maybe 100 million isn't 170 million or 200 million, but at least it's better than zero. And that's wrong because the real question you have to ask yourself is how much of this 100 million is net new money coming into the Canadian media ecosystem when you factor in A, the loss of direct funding that um, of, of Facebook pulling out of the industry. $18 B, million. So that's down to 82. And then B, what's the value of the distribution that new, that Canadian news was taking advantage of and how much money does Canadian news have to pay now to distribute on Facebook? That's an unknowable number. I think Facebook has claimed like it's 200 million, but that how do you value distribution? Yeah, I, distribution? I mean, who knows? That is some number. And then you got to look at, 
option C, which is to understand that Google had a number of pre-existing commercial deals that are still happening right now with 100 Canadian publications. Now, go back in time for a moment before C-18. Google recognizes that, that there is some kind of suite of global legislation coming down the pipe on media. What do they do? They start, they put together a $1 billion global fund um, for journalism across the world. And it's, I believe it's called Google Showcase. And they enter into pre-existing contracts with, I said, literally 100 publications here in Canada. What is how, What slice of that $1 billion did Canada get? I don't know, because each of those individual contracts was private and negotiated in secret. I believe there are some pretty strict NDAs around that. So I can't tell you if that number was 50 million, 20 million, 100 million, or 150 million. I've banged my head up against that repeatedly. No one's talking. No one's talking. So we know that the number is in the tens of millions. What does that mean? I don't know. But some, it was some number, and that those numbers were agreed to according to global metrics. In other words, uh, the Globe and Mail wasn't getting radically more money than a comparable magazine or news news organization in the UK. You know, like it was it was done according to sort of audience size, we presume, something like that. So what was that number? We don't know. But it's safe to assume, I think, that all of those pre-existing commercial deals are now going to be wrapped up into one journalism fund that will then be distributed by the government. So what that means for Google is that- Or some third party the government establishes. Yeah, Yeah. fair enough. Yeah, exactly. So what that means from Google's perspective is that they've just offloaded all of their compliance costs and all of their annoying per per outlet negotiations. They've they've washed their hands of all of it. Now they can just sign a one $100 million check, hand it over to the government and let the government handle the scraps. So the question of question is here, of this hundred million, how much of this is net new into the industry? The answer is we don't know. My guess is that it's probably larger than zero, and probably less than fifty million. That's so it's not, it's not, it's not huge, life changing amounts of money for an industry the size of Canadian media. Now, I'd, I'd be a little more cynical, Jane. You said life changing. I'm going to say life saving. I don't think it's life saving. It's, it's it's not life saving. Basically, that the, the, then we get into the question of well, how do you distribute this money? Well, we presume that the government is going to create some kind of industry panel that will decide how to distribute the money. But right yeah, now, yeah, Google didn't want to do that, so the government Google will establish something. Google will give it a hundred million dollars every year, and it's up to those guys to apportion it out. Right, and you can imagine who's going to get put on that industry panel to decide how the apportioning goes. I also wonder um, if they'll take a fee. That just oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know, but it just occurred to me in real time here. What if they take whoever this is? What if they take a management fee? That would be funny. So, so, so let's not get into the actual problems of how you distribute money and how you define who's a commercial entity and who's going to get in and who's going to get out because all of that fun is still yet to come. But the real thing right now is that we know that essentially um, the money is probably going to be distributed according to FTEs or full-time equivalents. So that means that, for example... If your media outlet is hiring 300 people, it will be apportioned to some section of the money 
times 300, right? And now the, there's also will be a, a, a series of haggling debating about, well, what kind of job counts for the purposes of a journalism FTE? Like, does a producer count? Does an editor count? Does a manager count? Is it just reporters? Is yeah. it photojournalists? Like, like that, all that fun bullshit is yet to come. But anyway, some amount, of, it will be basically based on FTEs. So here's where it gets more fun, Matt. Because guess who is the single largest uh, employer of journalists in this country? By far? Yeah. Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. (laughs) Which means that your bailout, which was initially lobbied for in order to preserve like the dying journalists, the dying public sector uh, newspaper chains, is overwhelmingly going to benefit a public broadcaster that already receives 1.2 to 4 million billion dollars in government funding. Now, we know that 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 is being fought over right now, so I fine. I don't think maybe it will, maybe it won't. But even if CBC only gets like half of what it's deserve what it's apportionate portion is according to FTEs or maybe a third, what still seems likely here is that the majority of this money is going to go to broadcast television. Many of those broadcast outlets, by the way, are uh, owned by parent companies that oh, are telcos that have an extraordinary has have a monopoly over the telco market, and they're therefore wildly po- um, profitable, even if their media divisions are losing money. And what is going to be left with here is somewhere between twenty five and forty million of this fund is going to be now scrapped over by all the leftover print media publications who fundamentally make up the core of the journalism ecosystem. So not only do we not know if any of this is actually net new money, but the way that the money is now going to be apportioned out means that the people who were lobbying hardest for the money might actually wind up worse off than they were prior to C-18. And ain't that just, wow, everybody, everybody, everybody's a loser. Everybody's a loser. Um, So there's that. And then you can kind of tell that the speculation on the math is roughly correct or our understanding of this is roughly correct when you look at the reactions, because the CBC was like, we, this hundred million dollar fund is going to be a real great step in the way of journalism. The broadcasters are like, great, super. The newspapers, uh, what? Toronto Star is now out saying, oh, this is incredibly disappointing. You've got News Media Canada, basically. Oh, it was News Media Canada's response. I'm going to pull it up here. I set it aside because it is it is not lethal. It's something to the effect of, uh, here. Sorry. Uh, we thank Minister Pascal Saint-Ange and her, the government for coming to an agreement with Google. How should I say this? Uh, the impact of this regulatory framework on the news publishers is dependent on the final regulations, which are essential to ensuring our publishers receive fair market value for our, their news content. Translation, kick, kick, kick CBC out of it, or we're going to be worse off than we were before. Um, Matt, I don't know what to say to this other than the fact that it seems to me like in a weird way, everybody got exactly what they deserved here. Yep. No, I yeah. agree. Okay. And, I mean... Where do you begin with this? It's a disaster. Steps into office and goes, fuck them all, defunds the CBC, cancels the deal. And we're all right back where we started or worse. Or Google under some future direction just got, yeah, you know what? This isn't worth it for us. We're out. Boom, gone. Remember, what people need to remember is that C-18 
basically had an opt-in or out provision, which was, mm -hmm. you know, you're only captured by these regulations if you distribute the links. So Meta, uh, which owns Facebook and Instagram, blocked the links, says we're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's absolutely nothing stopping Google in the future, either actually doing this or at least threatening to do this, which is to go, yeah, you know what? The deal sucks. We're out. And we understand that we will have to remove our, uh, the links, but we'll just do that. And the other, the other thing is that there is no, there's no business certainty here for no. the media industry, because no. I have no idea what a future conservative government, whether okay. or not that's next year, the year after, 10 years down the road. I have no idea what they're going to do. I mean, you know, Jen, my, you my, I, my guess, honestly, is that the conservative government probably won't repeal C-18, because after all of this drama, it's just not going to be worth the trouble. I, I wouldn't underestimate the degree to which I expect the next conservative government, whenever it takes power, to be motivated almost entirely by spite. That's a fair point. But I'm saying even if they were to repeal C-18, my guess is that Google has already, like, in Google Corporation's head, they've already apportioned this $1 billion. So they would just go back to revert to what was existing previously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll say, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. One of the things you and I have always taken a clear principled stand against this. We 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 object to the whole basis of this on the. Oh, and on, just to clear again, we will not take any of this money. We're not taking the Google money. We're not signing up to be a qualified journalist organization under the government aegis. We're not interested in government bailouts. We don't take tax credits for our our employees. Like we're not. No, we don't any. want to play this game. We, yeah, we, we're we, owner operated. We wouldn't. I don't know how much of this we stuff we qualify. qualify for anyway. Yeah, exactly. And that's fine. So, and that's fine. Even if we did, we wouldn't apply for it. And yeah. I think part of it is principle. We mm -hmm. we think this is a shakedown and we don't want to be tainted by it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the other part of it is just business survival. Um, this is a this is an incredibly risky, precarious arrangement. Even if it works in some way, you are I exist. Any any participant in this program will exist at the whim of the continued alignment in views of a big tech corporation that is not based in Canada and a Canadian political party that happens to hold the balance of power in parliament. And to me, that's just two fickle masters. Like it's not even enough to get one of them on side. You need both. Yeah. It's, I don't want to live that way. I want to continue to do what I'm doing every week, which is to say to our listeners and viewers here, subscribe to the line because we need money from sources that are relatively dependable. The line has a sky-high 12-month retention rate. People like what we do. That is reliable income for us. Everything being talked about under C-18, to me, is insanely risky. Yep, even if we could qualify, decision. even if we had no principled objections, from a business perspective, I would not want that cash. No, it's a, it's a bad way to grow. Um, so anyway, on that note, like and subscribe to The Line. I, I'm sorry we had to eat up your, your time talking about C18, but it was a big deal. And I think also, even if you're not particularly passionate about the media industry here, and I can understand why, um, I think it's important to understand what's happened through C18 and this clusterfuck that got us to this point, because it's indicative of exactly how this government regulates and legislates. Because it's what, what we've experienced with C18 is replicated in every other policy fiasco from guns to plastic bag bans all right they make the same kinds of mistakes over and over and over again from not listening to dissent and and demonizing dissent to writing really bad legislation that is vague and impenetrable to anybody who isn't you know legally trained to passing the buck down to the regulator to fix it to you know 
you know, profit, you know, until the stuff is eventually challenged in court. You know, I, I mean, it's the same story with these guys again and again and again. And I think being on the inside of it uh, through C-18 and, you know, having testified in committee and seeing what a farce that was, was really quite um, a valuable experience for me as a journalist, because you can see you can see the pattern, right? Yeah. And it's, you know, look, partisans are going to partisan. Um, partisans are going to partisan. There, there, a lot of people spinning this week is a big victory for um, the prime minister. And I actually, I think the prime minister did have a good week in some sense. The U.S. has largely validated uh, the India allegations. Yeah, they've signed, true. they've signed an agreement for the new Poseidon surveillance aircraft, which I know is nerdy, but that's actually a you know, very important procurement that we need. So I think the prime minister did have some stuff going for him this week, mm-hmm. but just all the people out there chanting a hundred million dollars, a hundred million dollars, our dear leader got you a hundred million dollars, hundred million minus 18 minus unknown quantity of uh, existing commercial agreements with Google minus network distribution, which was free via Facebook, which is now either lost or can only be purchased via monetization ads. So instead of free, it's now a cost. Like it, all of a sudden, smart people who will insist that they are the evidence-based thinkers in the room have yeah. forgotten arithmetic. Yeah, I know that. But hundred like, million minus stuff. Yeah, let's also just be clear: yeah. the Canadian media industry is worse off today than it, than it was, was than it was the day before you started this process. Mm-hmm. Financially, distribution-wise, its ability to grow everything here is now worse than it was as a result of the lobbying. That happened as a result by Canadian media. And also, I would say there's also a harder thing to quantify, and that is how much trust in our readers have we lost as a result of this lobbying? That is that you can't even quantify it, right? But on every level, we are worse off than we are today. Now, is the fact that Google and the government came to a deal good news? Yes, I think it is good news. It's good news that Google's not pulling the, the plug on the links. It but it takes us from existential collapse to merely worse off than we were before the government started to help us all right like and also bluntly if you were to tell me that google was okay with 100 million dollars because that's about minus compliance costs that's about what google was paying into the system prior to this and what the fuck was the last year that would not yeah, surprise me yeah that, that wouldn't google yeah. had that uh, it was Peter Menzies and Michael Geist have both both made this point already. Everything we wound up with after a year of this bullshit, which we've driven Meta out of the Canadian media landscape, was being offered by Google a year ago. And if you had actually just worked in, rather than turning this into a big crusade against the evils of big tech, if we had just gotten all the partners there and worked on a on a, on a mutually beneficial compliance kind of regime, we would be better off. There'd be more money in the fund and we, and, and Facebook wouldn't have cut us off. So and 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 you and I still would have been grumpy about this. The Second World War. Oh yeah. And by the way, you and I wouldn't have would would still have been grumpy about that. We still wouldn't have participated in that kind of a fund or that kind of a deal. It's a shame. But but as an but as an industry, we would have been better off. So oh, and by the way, the credibility issue is is a one is another thing. Finally, also we're starting to see the media begin to be critical of of C eighteen, which by the way they haven't been for years when there was actually money on the table, and now now that they finally are realizing that it's not very much money. Now they're critical. Yeah, yeah now they're critical. It's you know, you've sacrificed your soul for barely enough money to cover one quarterly loss. Congratulations, everyone. Yeah, it's it makes sad. me sad. It's sad, and this is also in I've said right highlighted for us the importance of maintaining our own financial independence because. I don't think there's a way to be a journalist without it. This is anyway. a happy, Jen, this is a happy occasion 
where our business self-interest and our principled views happen to align. You know what? Here's here's a here's a fun hypothetical. Imagine Google had showed up at our door and they'd said, look, we got we got to buy ourselves some good news and we want to offer the line five million dollars a year over the next 10 years. I don't know what I would have decided because uh, that's a, that's a different that's a different. Oh, it would have been to it still would have been under coercion, right? Well, but, yeah, you know, it would have been have under happy. It, we have the yeah, happy but... circumstance that our business interests and our moral interests align. Yes, I think we, it we, have, we got to avoid difficult conversations. Yeah, it, but it becomes a much more complicated conversation when you start saying, well, are they just buying advertising? Because if Google wants to buy $5 million worth of advertising for, from us on this oh, podcast. Oh, give me the fucking cash. Yeah, like we, into wouldn't, my veins. We, yeah. Wouldn't, we wouldn't find that to be morally compromising. But, you know, are we going to engage in... A in, in a in a cash fund that Google is not getting any commercial benefit from, and it no. is only participating in because they are trying to put off or uh, circumvent government regulation that that is being lobbied for on our behalf by by people in the industry. No, like I don't, I have an issue with that. So anyway, it's sometimes there are there are gray areas. Um, unfortunately, no one has offered us five million dollars in advertising cash yet. But hey, if you want to. Please reach out, line editor at protonmail.com. On that note, I don't want to belabor uh, media stuff because I know that for a lot of our audience, it's very inside baseball stuff. Um, well. Can I get one final thought for me and I can do it in one sentence? Okay, one second. It's exactly one what you were talking about a couple of weeks ago. And I think it was about the plastic straws. These yeah. guys legislate to capture the right comments to make with the vibe. Mm -hmm. And then they realize later, oh shit, it's a law. And that means something and it's a bad law and it's either not working or it's getting challenged. You can't legislate for the vibes. I understand how in some liberal strategist head tax the big evil foreign tech companies, save Canadian journalism made perfect sense as a vibe. It didn't make sense as a policy yeah. and it still doesn't. So, okay, thanks. Thanks everybody. Great work. Let's talk about uh, hostages because something really upset me this week and I can't, I'm still trying to identify what about it upset me. Normally I know better than to weigh in on this stuff on Twitter because there's like no good policy debate is being had on Israel and Palestine on Twitter. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of emotional energy, but something started to happen as the Hamas started to release its hostages. And that was, you had a lot of tanky types uh, and pro-Hamas types, and they, I'm not just talking about pro-Palestinian. I'm I, I'm drawing a distinction between pro-Palestine and pro-Hamas. I think there's a I think there is a, an overlapping but distinct set of groups here. I'm talking about the pro-Hamas. Yeah, there's some gray area between them, but yes. there's some gray area, and then there's some people who are like, actually, terrorism is good. Yeah. Um, and we'd like to see more. Yeah, I also think that there are genuinely good compassionate people who we're are just by the loss of life in Gaza. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It. And and I'm I'm not trying to conflate these two groups i'm really not but there were a lot of actual genuine pro hamas types who are coming out and saying things as the pictures of the of the hostages were being released you know they're pictures of people who have been kept at gunpoint for weeks some of them have lost their families some of them lost their families in front of them in violence um and then they, many of them were released they their facial expressions are either hard to read they're neutral some of them have even been kind of positive is in waving and a lot of the pro Hamasi types 
have used those pictures as evidence of something. They don't ever really explicitly say what that something is. The Israelis had a wonderful time in their tunnel vacation. Yeah, exactly. As if that justified the hostage taking or makes Hamas look good. Um, Always glossing over the fact that we already know that some of these hostages, including a 10-month-old baby, are dead. Or or at least Hamas has claimed, yeah. Yeah. Um, Glossing over the fact that some of these hostages almost certainly have been mistreated and raped. Some of these hostages might genuinely have been treated well. Some of these hostages might genuinely have developed relationships with their captors. Some of these hostages might have developed relationships with their captors in order to stay alive. Some of these hostages might have been told at gunpoint to wave and look happy when they were released. None of that matters. I mean, these hostages have loved ones who are still in the hands of Hamas because they've released some members of some families, but not others. Yeah. So if if I'm if I'm being let go, but my wife and children are still in captivity, you bet I'm going to fucking smile at the guards because I'm going to want them to not kill my wife and kids. Also, can I just be straight here? Even if Hamas had treated all of these people like kings and queens, which we know they have not, even if that were the case. That's not really relevant. None of this is is relevant. You can't take a picture of a hostage upon the moment of release, read into it whatever crazy emotion you want, and then use that as a post hoc justification for the hostage taking in the first place. All right, like that. That I'm not getting into the 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 bigger dynamics of who's right, who's wrong. I'm saying that's crazy behavior. That is backwater back tent revival religious nuttery if you were doing that you can't look at a picture of a hostage a traumatized hostage and firstly understand what their emotions are at all you don't know understand how they're being coerced or not you don't know and also even if you are correctly reading positive emotions from that you can't use that as post hoc justification of what why they were taken hostage in the first place that's fucking nuts you're nuts. You've lost the goddamn plot. All right. If you're doing that. And I saw that all over Twitter and I found it so personally upsetting that I made the mistake of commenting on it, which was unwise. But yeah, I'm not sure if I have anything else to say to that. But like when, when I see this, I'm like, y- y- the brain worms have entered your brain and you aren't with us anymore. You're You're orbiting the Mars now when I see this on Twitter and I've seen it too often. I've seen so, some pretty high profile people too. Um, yeah. Um, also, I think your microphone is, is, is cupped out here. You're, you're kind of coming in and out. You're really quiet right now. My mistake. Give me one second. I can fix that. Are you able to hear me better now? No, it's very, very faint. How strange. Um, Maybe just plug in and replug in your microphone. That's what I'm going to do. So I'm going to make a note of this. Oh, now Line... so you just you just came back in. Whatever you just did worked. I think I know what that is. Line okay. podcast uh, viewers and listeners, my apologies. Uh, I think that when I put my drink down, I crimped the cable. So Jen, okay. tell me again if that happens. And, and, and apologies to the uh, the listeners and viewers. Um, Jen, I know what you mean. And I, I find myself reverting to where I was at the very beginning. Um, which is to reiterate over and over and over again that I am not going to spend a single moment arguing with people about this. I Mm -hmm. I don't have the emotional energy. I don't have the intellectual interest. Mm -hmm. I probably don't have the strength of character. Mm -hmm. 
And in, in a ruthlessly pragmatic way, there is no win for me in arguing with anyone. Mm-hmm. I accept everything people are telling me, whether they're saying it overtly, whether they're signaling it with their actions, I accept. And I 100% further accept that people are looking at my comments and they are drawing conclusions about me. Mm-hmm. And I respect their ability to do that. I respect their right to do so. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to argue with any of them. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to try and change a single person's mind about the issue, mm-hmm. about their own position, or about mm-hmm. my position. Mm-hmm. I'm not repeating that to me. Repeat it to me over and over again until it gets through my entirely thick skull, Matt. I have a 0% success rate of getting stuff through your skull. Oh, Looking over the years, I'm batting zero. You can't even get me to stop using semicolons, man. No, it's but I can, I can take them out myself. You can, um, and I appreciate you for it. I, Jen, I, I know what you mean. And uh, apologies to all listeners and viewers. I've just had to change my microphone. It was acting up on me. Um, Jen, I know exactly what you mean. I'm I'm as appalled by some of what I've seen as anyone. Um, as, as you are, I find it as upsetting uh, to see people that I respect in most contexts acting in ways that to me are morally repugnant. But I, I try to be philosophical about it. I try to rem- remember that there's absolutely nothing that will be served by arguing. Arguing about this stuff online to me, and I don't say this in a critical way of you or anyone else, but I think people would rather be angry than sad. Mm. Uh, people take bad feelings that are inside and they externalize them. And I think it feels better to go yell at someone online than it is just to be sad. And And sit with your sadness. Just accept it. Now I, I am constitutionally equipped to, to, to stew in my sadness. I'll sit Mm -hmm. with sadness all day long. Um, And I also just say like, look, I mean, here in a position in Canada, we're in a position of privilege and sometimes it's not a bad thing to have a position of privilege. There are limits to what we can do that will have any meaningful impact to the escalation of violence in the Middle East right now. You know, there's just, I mean, we can debate about this minor policy or this this funding or whatever. There are some limits to our power and our control here. What we do have control over is how we as a society react is it, to that war. And what we do have control over is the degree to which we allow ourselves internally to be torn apart. I have to start coming from this issue. And again, I'm struggling with this by saying the people who disagree with me at the end of the day are my friends, my neighbors, my colleagues. And I have to start coming at this from a position of compassion and respect and also understanding that it's not appropriate to level threats or violence or to intimidate them in any way because they are first and foremost fellow citizens, neighbors, friends, and friends and colleagues. And if we can start from that position of like, hey, we're all citizens, we're all neighbors, we're all actually in this together and we're actually all on the same team, even if we disagree. If we start from this idea that actually, no, we Canadians are on the same team here. We have to live with each other. Then the disagreements over the relatively minor or superficial policy stuff kind of... It resolves itself. They're, they're, they're resolvable differences and disagreements. But if we're starting from this position saying, no, the Jews among us are this, or the, or the Muslims among us are this, or the Zionists among us are this, or the blah, 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 you've allowed your internal cohesion to fall apart. 
And there's no call for that in this context. We are not in the Gaza Strip. Nobody listening to this podcast is in the Gaza Strip or in the West Bank or any of the rest of us. We're all living in Canada, which is a, a comparatively peaceful, prosperous nation in which you know we value, have, have a couple of basic shared values about who we are and what, the, what we stand for. And if we can't start from that place of unity, then no good comes of this. No good comes from a collapse in social cohesion. No good comes from a position of dehumanizing your neighbor, especially considering ultimately it will make no difference to the Middle East one way or the other. If we're out here, you know, throwing up anti-Semitic posters on Indigo and targeting Jewish daycares in Canada, that makes no goddamn difference to what's happening in Israel and the Gaza Strip. But it is making a huge difference to your relationships with your neighbors and friends. And it's making a huge difference to our ability to function as a society to solve problems together. You're just doing damage at that point. You... And I think that maybe we all need to step back and do our best to start from a position of, you know, I have I have nothing but the most love for the people who I most disagree with. That is a very, very difficult thing to cultivate. I'm struggling with it, Matt. I'm struggling. That That's very mature of you, very emotionally gracious of you. Uh, I take a different view. Uh, <laughs> I take the immature, no, non-gracious no. view. Now, no, no, look, people who disagree with me on this issue can go fuck themselves because they're bad people and they're anti-Semites. But I live with them, like, like not literally in my house, but like in my society. My society is full of people that I think are detestable fucking asshole scumbags. My society is full of people I look at with contempt because I think they're anti-Semites, but I can live with that. It's not comfortable. It's 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 uncomfortable. But um, my my attitude to this is that there is some significant percentage of the population that I find appallingly repugnant, and I know with total sincerity that they find me appallingly repugnant. But I don't need those fuckers, and they don't need me. And to the extent that I have to interact with them in, in, the, in the pursuit of shared aims and, and common good, things like plowed roads and funded schools and uh, helping my neighbor who, I don't know what he thinks about Israel Hamas. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm never going to ask. But if he needs help shoveling his sidewalk, I'll help. But that doesn't mean I need to think any of you dumb fucks are all united with me in some kumbaya, jo joyful communion of uh, of the fellowship of mankind. I am emotionally and intellectually comfortable living in a society that includes people that I find detestable. And is, is it possible that we're saying the same thing, but from the totally opposite perspectives? It's not to say that I necessarily need to need these people to be not detestable or to be, or to agree with me. I don't, but yes, but I do think that we all need to prioritize what matters here. What matters here is the things that are mutually beneficial to all of us. Yeah. Cloud rose, funded schools, continued prosperity, you know, like, like non-fire kind of bombing stuff. of community centers. Yeah, non-fire bombing of community centers. Big one. Right? There's a t-shirt that I saw years ago, and I I think of it often, and I'm sure everybody out there has seen versions of it. It's like the more I get to know people, the more I like my dog. And um, my dog, actually, I don't know if the listeners can hear him. He's being a real bastard right now because he's howling loudly upstairs because I think the kids are home but playing in the yard. Um, in fact, I'm going to ask for one quick second. I'm going to mute this video just long enough to yell. Give me one moment. Okay, here. Great.
I think we should actually keep that in. Yeah, we'll we'll keep that in. Yeah, um, definitely. So, what I would I don't know. Maybe we are saying the same thing. I, or, I think I think that we're saying the same thing in a different in a sort of a, a rational materialist point of view versus like a kind of attempting to be all encompassing and compassionate point of view. But we're we're ultimately at the same place. I think you're arriving at my destination when you're going through the grieving process. Um, something I said at the very outset of this conflict uh, that for me has been helpful is that nothing that I have seen, nothing I have learned, nothing I have heard has challenged my worldview. And there are a great many people in this country today, I think, whose worldview has been challenged by this conflict. They are finding themselves having to reconsider their own positions. They're having themselves uh, making unpleasant realizations about people they would have counted as friends and loved ones and all that stuff. Maybe it's kind of the fact that I have ruthlessly culled my friend group down to people who are no longer capable of surprising me. Maybe it is the fact that I have a fairly low estimation of my fellow man. Uh, I don't know what it is, but no, I, here, has no, been unleashed by this has challenged my worldview, and I don't have a problem accepting it. I find it upsetting. A lot of it. I find a lot of this very upsetting. But I'm like, here's the thing: if 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 any of these dumb fucks you know, chanting from the river to the sea broke down at the side of the road, I would pull over and call CAA for them. Yes, we're coming. I said, we've come to the same conclusion from this, from the opposite. Okay. So I, I, I'm slightly different in the sense that I think that we in North America uh, are in the latest, latest episode of, you know, moral panic and mob rule over a highly contentious moral issue. Um, What I'm starting to come to terms with is the fact that, there is no way to feed into that division that leads to anything more, but more anything but more division. The only way out of the mob rule problem is to stop thinking like the mob, and the only way to stop thinking like the mob is to start seeing the people you hate with a degree of compassion. And 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 as, as I said, as as humans, in, you know, still engaged in a common project, the common project of citizenship and nationhood. And I think that when that ability goes away no good comes of that. No good comes of that at all. So, and also part of that is the other part of it is, is a respect for due process and some reasonable limits on civil, reasonable boundaries around civil discourse are part of that process. Like we have, they're, they're guardrails for a reason. So I said, I think we've just come to the same position from different perspectives. I think, um, Always kind of it always feels strangely narcissistic to talk about yourself, but I think I'm not a reactive person and I'm not a reactionary person. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes something pretty appalling. Like, and let, let me let me step back to this. I think a lot of people right now, all across North America, and I think this goes back for years, have been constantly repositioning themselves in response to what someone else has done where they hmm. find it appalling and they recoil from it. I don't I don't interact I don't react to people that way. And my own political views have been very consistent for a, a long time. They they evolve incrementally. I've been wrong on some issues, I've softened on others, I've hardened on others. But it's always been sort of a process of intellectual self-discovery on my own part. Mm-hmm. What the rest of you crazy fellow citizens are doing doesn't really bother me 
now it bothers me when enough of you morons get a shitty idea in your head and outvote the people who think like me. That's a problem. But one of the things I think is remarkable these days, and I think everyone would have some version of this story, is people they know in recent years becoming radicalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I think is equally remarkable is how few people I think would have any self-awareness of the fact that they are radicalized. Mm-hmm. We're all crazy now. Not all of us. Not you. It's not just me, though, because that would be a dick thing to say. But <laughs> one of the more interesting conversations I've been having with people in recent years, and this is the interesting thing, it cuts right through what you would think of as normal partisan political alignment. Hmm. There are a lot of people in this country, and I first started to notice it at the beginning of the pandemic, and I've certainly noticed it all the way through since, who haven't changed that much. They have just not gone crazy. They have not jumped on one or the other of the bandwagons. And this is going to sound like a partisan comment, but I don't mean it right now. Extremely devoted liberal voters federally right now are looking at week after week of six of just one horrific poll after another. Some of these people have gone fucking insane and they don't mm-hmm. know. It. Mm-hmm. And this, I told you a few days ago, you and I were talking about the state of things. I told you a few days ago to go back and read a really good column. A smart woman I know meant uh, wrote her name's Jen Gerson. And she wrote a column about how when someone goes crazy, they don't, they don't. know. It. Well, okay. To be fair, I got that anecdote from you, though. So you know. what you got from me was you're, a you're giving you're line. giving yourself praise in in. You wrote the column. You took and I you took something I said to you, which is that crazy don't know it's crazy. Mm-hmm. You don't see it when you're in it. Yeah, that's something I said to you in the pandemic, and you spun that into an entire essay, and I thought it was mm-hmm. fantastic. All right. Well, that's just because you gave me the idea. That's why you thought it was fantastic. It helped. I will acknowledge <laughs> it helped. But I think you made it. Don't be fooled, line listeners. He's praising himself in the guise of praising me. You did amazing work with my brilliance. <laughs> you, though, saw something. Because the reason, like, I didn't just bestow this pearl of wisdom on you one day. I said that to you because you were telling me that a lot of people around you had gone insane. And we are still in that place. We are not mm. calming down post-pandemic. No. I think we're getting much worse. Yep. I think the center, I'm gonna I'm gonna go full poetic here. The center has not held, the center has collapsed, things yep. have fallen apart. Yeah. And I don't mean the sense that this is some sort of dystopian post-apocalyptic hellhole, but I think as a society right now, we are not cohered. We are not a coherent society right now. Mm-hmm. We are at best shattered into amorphous blobs that are floating around each other at worst. We're at war with each other. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons uh, this is so problematic is, and this is why, like I, I said to you before, I don't give a shit what anyone thinks about me on this issue, and I'm not bothered by what you think. Certain issues reasonable people can strongly disagree on, and it doesn't matter. If you fucking love agricultural subsidies and i don't you and i could still go out and get married we can be the best of friends we can run a business together yeah you're a star wars person i'm a star trek person i am i'm also bob babylon five come on now i tried so many times i just couldn't do it um (laughs) 
That's not a problem in our relationship or any hypothetical relationship we could have. If I fundamentally believe that Hamas is attempting to annihilate the Jews of Israel and Israel's military response is a necessary step in their self-preservation, and you think Hamas terrorism is justified as a legitimate reaction to 75 years of oppression, if you and I are both deeply emotionally mature or maybe just like half senile, we can probably find a way to make that relationship work, but it's going to be really fucking hard. That is not a Star Trek, Star Wars divide anymore. Yeah. And one of the things that I just kind of, I look at the polls of this as they come out, American and Canadian, the two sides that I've just sort of basically sketched out, I'm going to be very lazy here. I'm going to call them one, the pro-Israel side, and I call one, the pro-Palestinian side. In North America, they are roughly the same size. There are age breakdown differences. The younger you are, the more likely you are to be sympathetic to Palestine. But in terms of raw aggregate numbers, the two groups are within the margin of error of these polls of each other. Mm -hmm. And there is a small group of people, God bless them, who don't have opinions on this. So like I said- The last sane people among us. Perhaps, or completely insane and distracted by other insane things. I don't know which one it is. But But do you want to know the way, the way through that particular problem? The way through it is that I will call you an ambulance if I see you slip and fall on the ice. I'll call the CAA if I see you broken down at the side of the road, and I won't object to my tax dollars funding the school your kids go to. But I'm never going to fucking talk to you. You're not going to be my friend. Okay, so another way, and again, again, I think that this is that this is, it gets us to more or less the same place a little bit, but from a slightly different path. It's to recognize that these two positions are irreconcilable, but also at the end of the day, not that important especially when for people living in Canada. It's it's about deprioritizing the importance of that divide in terms yeah, of how we live our lives every day. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if I see you broken down the side of the road, my greater priority is making sure in my own sense of moral obligation, uh, yeah. My, yeah. I prioritize my moral duty to assist yeah. a human being in need over yeah. an argument over fundamental geopolitical issues. I'll grant yeah, that. That's right. Point. That's right. And I, I think, and I think, and I think that the, the heart of that, the heart of that is compassion for another human being. You have to, you have to co- actively cultivate compassion for those people to, on the other side as humans, as fellow humans on the earth. For what it's worth, when I act charitably to a fellow man, it's not out of compassion. It's out of a sense of duty. I'm sure. However you want to play that. I mean, as I said, whether or not you think compassion is duty or duty is compassion is probably some Buddhist proverb somewhere, but, uh, well, I, I find semantics difference. Don't care. Well, Don't care. Um, maybe you're, I treat, mean, you're treating your fellow human as a human. I'm treating you're my rest- right. You're and- treating your fellow human as a human. Anyway, that's, that's this is we can, we're now getting into philosophy. I'm not sure if we're <laughs> if we're getting anywhere useful. But as I said for me, I think the path forward is to understand that yes, these these sides are are fundamentally different worldviews. They're not reconcilable positions. And also, just as a, an aside, this is also why the liberals have failed so dramatically to assert a point of view, because they think that the problem is one of tone. The problem isn't one of tone. You have to pick a side. Um, but the pro- but the other flip side to that is that we in Canada are, have the privilege of deprioritizing that split and saying, ultimately, at the end of the day, if my neighbor is a pro-Palestinian or a pro-Israeli, that's not the most important thing about them. And it's not the most important thing it's not the most important aspect of our duty to one another or our obligations to one another. 
if if you're if you're living in Canada, if you're living like in Stroud or something like that, maybe that's a different conversation. But here, it isn't. Is that a, a good place to land? I'm a little more cynical than you, um, but we can. We can land it there. I think we can, we can land it there. I think I think we can go with it. Like and subscribe to like Lion. Show, show us that show us show us that you are a human being capable of great compassion for even your if, fellow human beings. Even if you're someone that I would deem a detestable scumbag, like and subscribe. Please share our content. <laughs> um, we've burned a lot of the clock here. Um, I want to talk very briefly on uh, Ottawa bubble stories. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I because I think I just want to talk briefly about the Ottawa bubble stories. To, and then dismiss them as Ottawa bubble stories. But just to show everyone we're paying attention to the Ottawa bubble. And that is uh, uh, Rachel Thomas, uh, I think in the midst of the uh, heritage hearings over C-18, was asking Heritage Minister Pascal Setange to repeat uh, an answer in English. And everybody in the Ottawa bubble freaked out and was like, what kind of dishonor? We are a bilingual country. This is dishonorable to the French language. And... Thomas was doing it because she knows very well that the liberals offer very different uh, answers in French versus English. And yes, she was trying to get her social media clip. And so what? Who cares? Also, just so that we're clear, we're not a fully bilingual country. Putting that out there. Only in Ottawa. French. Yeah, and only in Ottawa do they actually believe that this is a bilingual country. This is it's not. Moving on. Anyway, nobody cares outside of Ottawa. It's an Ottawa bubble story. Moving on. I had a I had a slightly different reaction. I, I think okay. fundamentally I agree with you. It's, it's no one cares. Um, but my reaction was I cannot tell you how many times over over the, my career because I've been busy the last couple of weeks. Like I I have kind of mm-hmm. I've only had time the last couple of weeks to kind of be engaged in the stories that I'm actually planning to do something with a lot of other stuff. I told you before we started rolling, I feel like the last few weeks, like big news stories have just been whizzing by my head, like fastballs. And by the time I know they're there, they're gone. But over my career and normally, I don't think this is something that's behind me. I just haven't had time the last few weeks. Um, Oh, if, if just for the, for the listener, I'll just break the fourth wall. Our fi- mm-hmm. the lines fiscal year recently ended. I'm buried in tax bullshit. Like that's like that's where I am these days. Uh, but I, I cannot tell you, and I don't even care to guess how many press conferences or press scrums I've watched from federal officials. And mm-hmm. something that happens routinely is that a member of the French uh, French Canadian press gallery will politely go after the prime minister or a cabinet minister or the opposition yeah. leader will give an yeah. answer. They'll go en français. And then yes. and, and they'll go, oh, of course. And then yes, they'll, of course. Yes. and it's so that Radio Canada or TVA or whatever in Quebec can get the clip in French. Yep. yep. And no one cares when that happens. No one cares when that happens. Because, because it is a bilingual country and there's a, a large yeah. minority of this country that absorbs their news content primarily in French. Sure, fair enough. And when I hear reporters say to the Prime Minister, Mr. Polyev, you know, en français, s'il vous plaît, and they go, oh, oui, and then they give, they give the answer again. And I go, okay, next. Like, it's not a big deal. It's no, not a big not. deal. So why was it a big deal that she's asking for it in English? That's, um, that's, that's a non- You know what? I'll tell you why it's a big deal. And this, <sighs> is, this is a comment that I think is very much going to relate to our next one, which was Ukraine free trade deal. Mm-hmm. The liberals are swinging at everything these yeah. days. There's, okay. There's yeah. not one pitch that the liberals aren't swinging at. Yep. Um, 
hey, it could work. I'm not I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Like I I have no moral or political judgment on whether they, or not they, they don't they don't know how to keep their powder dry. They don't know how to keep their powder dry. And they think that if they win, they're winning the news cycle in like five columns in the deepest, darkest heart of of Ottawa, that that's a win and a win is a win. I, I mean, but as I said, this is the epitome of an Ottawa bubble story. Nobody, nobody cares. But I, um, I think that, but like the, the broader context, you have to fit this in these days. We talked about it quite a lot last week with the, the uh, Pierre Polyev and the terrorism comment in the House. Mm-hmm. The Liberals are swinging at everything right now. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I don't think it's a coincidence. I think they know they're behind. I think they're looking for a good win either like a good juicy social media win or like an actual gotcha against Mr. Polyev. I don't know if it's an intuitive thing grasped by all of them or if it's been an actual directive at the top, but they're swinging at everything. And uh, law of speaking, averages, they're going to have some hits. Yeah, a swing, speaking of swinging at, at everything. So the conservatives opposed a Ukrainian trade deal because it had language around carbon pricing. That's why they say it. they did. I'm skeptical. Yeah. Anyway, again, I think this is an Ottawa bubble conversation that the trade deal passed. How much use the trade deal is actually going to be? I don't know. Don't care. Um, Do I think it was kind of stupid to oppose a trade deal because it had some obscure sort of carbon pricing on it? Eh, yeah. Version pulled are you? Ukraine like already has carbon pricing. The whole thing. Yeah, was, like no, I, stupid. And it's stupid. Also, I mean, is this some kind of weird dog whistle to the uh, pro-Putin, anti-Ukraine, right-wing stuff? Yeah, very possibly. I don't, yeah, I don't discount that. Don't discount it. I also think that given how much of the uh, Ukrainian diaspora is located in the conservative parts of the country, I think you'd probably have to balance that out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the conservatives are much more likely to be pro-Ukraine than anti-Ukraine just because of how many Ukrainians there are here and how many of them are generally lean conservative or vote conservative. I, I don't know. They are within conservative politics. Maybe. I, I don't know these days what animates the conservatives. Rational electoral policies, mm-hmm. fringe social media batshittery. Yeah, fair enough. Is, yeah, fair enough. And there's definitely... It's a tug of war between the two and I don't know on any given day which way they're going. And there is definitely some fringe social media batchettery where the conservatives uh, among conservative social media mavens who are highly skeptical of Ukraine um, and actually really like Putin because they see him as a, a strong Christian leader, uh, you know, whatever. Anyway, it, it, that's that whole side note is a side conversation. Again, is this sort of thing, the sort of thing we're going to even remember talking about two weeks from now? No. Moving on. Uh, I don't think it's going to hurt him in the polls. I think it's probably was a stupid strategic mistake on their part. It was a cell phone that didn't need to happen. It also isn't that big a deal. Yeah, I, th- I think that's all fair. What I the only comment I would make um, to that, and I agree with, I, I think I'm I'm with you ninety nine percent of the way. This is a political analysis. I have not bothered pinging any of my conservative friends to ask them this because I simply do not care enough. But I've seen a series of Western Canadian-based conservative MPs, which in fairness is most of them, but guys who have large profiles in Western Canada, I've seen a series of videos on social media platforms where they go out of their way to talk about how much they love Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's damage control. They, uh, it doesn't yeah. have... I don't think they're panicked, but I do think they've realized, uh, we probably didn't do that well. Agreed. I agree. It's damage control. And also, again, this goes back to a reflection of where the Ukrainian diaspora 
overwhelmingly in places like rural Alberta, Saskatchewan, like there are actually more Ukrainians in Canada than in any other country aside from That's not true anymore. And I know what you mean. Poland did that change now because of the refugees. Oh, because okay, so but But just pre-war, just pre-war, the largest Ukraine. Yeah, exactly. This is this is a very very large diaspora, and also they're very influential in politics. They they have rules in politics, particularly in conservative politics. So, um, yeah, I I I think it's it's electorally dumb for the conservatives to take a a pro-Russian role on this, just from a pure math point of view. Um, Anyway, here's the thing though: we live in stupid times. Yes, correct. We've already we've spent literally an entire podcast explaining in detail just how stupid our times are. How I watch in the the last two weeks while I've been elbows deep in bullshit paperwork, I admit I've not been on the news as much as I should be. Mm -hmm. Plus, my son has a hockey tournament coming up. He's just back for tournament. Like I said at the beginning, I need a vacation. I need a fucking vacation. Mm -hmm. But even to the limited extent I'm paying attention at all. The level of of baseline stupidity coming out of our federal government, and I'm I'm talking all of them, the whole of them, the whole kit and caboodle. It's too goddamn high. It's too high. All yeah. Like we got, we have everyone needs a vacation. The liberals are obviously road testing a mega attack line, Mm -hmm. guys. Yeah, we'll see how that works. The conservatives had no coherent explanation for the Ukraine free trade vote. And now they're trickling out the stupid social media videos to try and mitigate whatever limited damage that's going to be. Jugmeet Singh goes Versace shopping. All of them are idiots. Mm -hmm. And I think some of them are inherently idiots. Some of them aren't inherently idiots, but they've gotten there, I think, through a process of exhaustion and spending too much time in the bubble. Mm -hmm. They all need to go home. I think yep. we're about have to a nice holiday from the parliamentary yep. break. Yeah, it's time for everyone to go home and have a nice Christmas and calm the fuck down. Cool your tits, all of you. Cool your tits. On that note, I think we're I think we're good. What do you think? There was one other thing, but it's marginal. I think we can we can let it go. But yeah, I mean, the main takeaway I would say, kind of like I was saying a minute ago, is uh, the liberals are swinging at everything. Mm-hmm. They're stupid. The conservatives yep. are picking stupid fights. Punch they're, drunk. Stupid. They're, all, they're all punch drunk. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know. It's, you know, we, we talked like, you know, I, I said to you a few minutes ago how I'm pretty okay living in a society full of people I find detestable. Mm-hmm. I'm actually less okay living in a society where <laughs> I think the government's full of punch drunk idiots, but here we are. So well, that's representative democracy for you in a nutshell. Now, isn't it, man? There you go. <laughs> like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Sign up for a paid account the line today. Show deep, deep emotional compassion and, and love for the line. I'm not going to love you, but I'll call CAA for you. Or if I see smoke coming out of your window, I'll knock on your door and call 911. And it's not That's because up. I have compassion. It's because I think that I think God has blessed me in many ways and he expects me to do good. And I don't do it because I give a shit about you. I do good because I think someone expects it of me. Well, you know what? That's all anybody can really ask of anyone. I I wouldn't leave you in a ditch to die. Headline. All right. right. Bye. Uh, No, we should stop recording now. Oh, okay. To the listeners and the viewers then, like and subscribe. Bye. Bye.